Let's talk about the scientific differences between the sexes. Let's talk about the quality of light and of color temperature. Let's talk about being a hunter-gatherer in the 21st century. Let's talk about boredom as a reason for addiction. Let's talk about childhood, parenthood, and relationships. Let's talk with two evolutionary biologists who enjoy sleeping together. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Darwin, his theory is called natural selection. Within a species there is variation. From differences in genes and some mutations. Random, yeah. The best adapted are more likely to survive. Because they can reach the food they need to stay alive. Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein are perhaps two of the most enigmatic evolutionary biologists in the world. Not because of any calculated contrarianism, but because of their earnest standpoint in refusing to be bullied into any fashionable consensus of thought. Like Brett, Heather taught at Evergreen State College for 15 years, and prior to that she studied at UC Santa Cruz before earning her PhD at the University of Michigan. Brett Weinstein also attended UC Santa Cruz and earned his doctorate from the University of Michigan as well. They are highly regarded and have addressed such bodies as the United States Congress, the Justice Department, and the Department of Education. Together and individually, they have written numerous works. Now, I must say that I presume, looking at your bios, that uh, with this commonality of Santa Cruz, may I assume that this is where both of you met? We actually met in high school. And let me just say, it's such a pleasure to be talking with you and to be introduced to your audience. Um, Yeah, we met in high school. We were friends for many years in high school and then uh, got together in college, actually. So went to Santa Cruz together and then to Michigan together and on with all of the rest of the adventures in our lives. The best marriages, I think, are often made from friendship first. And so I I take heart and delight in the the idea that you were friends before you evolved into being, uh, got that, evolved, before you uh, (laughs) became a committed couple, which is great. Well, the main thing you want to know about this, ladies and gentlemen, is their book. Their latest book is entitled A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, subtitled Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. And by gosh, by gum, by golly, there certainly are challenges to modern life. I think that's indisputable. Heather and I have had that title and the rough idea for what the book might look like for more than a decade. And it really was an encapsulation of the kind of toolkit that we deliver to students and that many of them really asked us to deliver in some form that they could share it. Uh, I must say, as we have, as the book has emerged into the world, and it has become clear how it is seen, there is a small part of me that wonders if the title shouldn't have been hyper novelty, because really the, the theme of the book is human beings are the product of an exquisite design process that selection has built us beautifully for an environment that we do not inhabit. And this has made us 
ill. It has made us physically, emotionally, psychologically, and socially sick. And because this is people's daily reality, they get a wrong impression. You know, it's almost as if selection is a very crude process that has made uh, a kind of uh, crude critter. But that is not what we are. And understanding why it is not what we are is the key to figuring out what to do about it. So that is, uh, that is what we hope people will get, is the idea that we cannot go back. There is no past environment that we could return to. We must go forward. But to go forward haphazardly is to continue to get sicker in this way. And that would be uh, a terrible error and a tragedy. The title that we did go with, which, as Brett said, has been in our heads for over 10 years, is a reference to what most people think of when they're asked to think back to our prehistorical past, you know, the, the past before which we were writing anything down. And it's true that humans did spend time as hunter-gatherers on the African savanna and on the coasts. Uh, and that, however, is not the only truth about our evolutionary history. So we push back uh, early in the book against the idea of a, you know, a single uh, a single moment, a single uh, environment of evolutionary adaptiveness, to use the term of art. In fact, what we say is we could have called the book uh, Post-Industrialist's Guide to the 21st Century, because although we are less well adapted to, say, 1900-era uh, innovations, we are we were doing okay at that point. We do have some adaptive response to that moment, or we could have called it an agriculturalist's guide to the 21st century or hunter-gatherer's guide as we did, or go farther back in time, you know, a primate's guide, a mammal's guide, a fish's guide, where all of these things, and these all represent moments in our evolutionary history to which we are adapted. But because we have this capacity to change our environment to our whim more quickly than any other organism on earth. We have in fact created an environment ourselves to which we are not adapted and we cannot keep up. Essentially your book, and uh, I quote here, addresses the issue of our brains, bodies, social systems that are perpetually out of sync. Uh, you say that we are generating new problems at a new and accelerated rate, and it is making us sick in many regards. Added to this is the effects of what I've also heard Brett refer to as a false sophistication. Um, how does that impair things even further? Well, effectively, the problem is there's an analog between our development and our evolution. Our development takes an individual and adapts them to the environment in which they will have to function. But the assumption in there, just as there's an assumption built into evolution that the environment that you will function in looks something like your ancestors' environment, there's an assumption that the environment that you will be an adult in looks a lot like the environment in which you were a child and an adolescent. And we all know just from empirical experience that the world that we function in as adults doesn't look much at all like the world we were born into. Right? We could we could not have foreseen the transformation of our sense making by social media, the transformation of the way we navigate the world by cell phones and all of the other changes. And so the point is, even in principle, there's no mechanism by which a creature built uh, based on the assumptions that are at our core could function well in this environment. It is changing too rapidly. And so what we must do is figure out how to rein in that process so it is not constantly delivering us challenges that we are not capable of meeting. One of the things that the two of you 
have referenced is the idea of, of caution uh, before we disrupt things. You make reference to precautionary principle, which is basically an epistemological respect for what is known and don't mess for, with things until you fully understand what you at least think is known. And then the Chesterton's uh, fence theory, which is uh, referenced to his book in 1929, The, the Thing, and the idea being that there is a, a fence that's encountered by two strollers, if you will, wanderers, and one wants to tear it down and another one says, hey, wait a minute, um, maybe we ought to find out why the fence is there first. We do seem to live in a time when uh, people want to radically eliminate that which has been established, redefine it, expand it at potential great cost. Well, in part, uh, you know, back to your your point about Brett having invoked a false sophistication that we have. We live in a secular age in which the sophisticates think that we have overturned religion for science and that what we are doing is living downstream of science and that if we just trust those who come to us bearing the hallmarks of science, then we will do okay. But we argue in the book, you know, we are we are scientists to our core, that what is passing for science all too often now is a result of a reductionist, uh, metric-driven quantitative over qualitative understanding of the world. It's kind of an engineer's approach as opposed to a biologist's approach. Mm. And engineers have done tremendous, tremendous good in the world and provided us some of the many modern conveniences, which we are grateful for and which we would have a hard time at this point living without. But they tend to underestimate the complexity of systems. And evolution is not even really understood by many biologists. So a, we, we basically caution by invoking the precautionary principle in Chesterton's fence for a step back, an understanding of what we have been, what we are adapted to, in order to understand whether or not the quick fixes that we are being handed, you know, the pill to deal with your anxiety, as opposed to trying to figure out what the anxiety is telling you, the, you know, you know, the pill to deal with morning sickness if you're pregnant, the, um, the advent of lights um, that help you navigate at night when you have to get up in the middle of the night, but what is that doing to our sleep patterns? You know, all of these quick fixes that actually end up disturbing ancient patterns and, uh, and at, at our peril. So I think it's, it is crucial that people recognize how this process normally functions for someone who is a, a well-adjusted adult. You know, we all, I'm quite convinced that we don't get smarter as we age. We do get wiser, but we all know very smart teenagers, right? But it's mm -hmm. not unusual to watch a smart teenager make a spectacular error based on an oversimplification of something that has a degree of truth in it. Yes. And I guess what I would say is look at all of the things that seem likely to be right, right? Social media is going to bring us closer together. We've been alienated from each other by the way we move around the world and, you know, pursue careers that take us away from the families we're born into and all of that. Social media will bring us closer together. Well, how'd that work out? Right? The fact is we are in some ways closer together. I know people from high school I probably wouldn't be in touch with otherwise. On the other hand, almost every day I find myself facing bitter arguments with strangers right? That, that's yes. not exactly the intent. We could also say, well, 
birth control and an awareness of the details of what sex and sexuality actually are has liberated us to do whatever we want with that landscape. And it's going to make us much more fulfilled. Well, how's that working out? Right. The fact is, it's a landscape of misery in which people are constantly complaining about all of the things that have happened uh, to these uh, this quadrant of their life. So the point is, but I'm just I just have to interrupt. You're not arguing against birth control. Birth control has been a incredibly freeing innovation. Um, and, you know, and, and people have been engaging in birth control for millennia, but uh, especially with hormonal birth control in the 60s, we have a freeing of women from traditional roles that really did allow for an expansion into the workforce that 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 wasn't really possible before. What you are arguing, as I know, but I just want to make, make it clear here, is that there are also downstream wait effects. Wait a minute, Heather, are you concerned that people might misinterpret you? <laughs> I know that's never happened before, but I'm always on the lookout. <laughs> well, if I may, in my own defense, I'm also not arguing against social media or cell right. phones yes, or yes, any, yes. any of the things precisely. that are causing I mean, these harms. Essentially, my- it sounds as if I may interject for a second here. Uh, it sounds to me that you are arguing the brick. You know, it's the application. The brick can be used for a tool to bludgeon somebody's skull into the sidewalk or it can be put as a cornerstone for a foundation of a medical clinic. The brick is neutral. So social media in, in its essence, by concept, is neutral. It's the application that gets messed up. Well, and we have a version of this that we frequently invoke on Dark Horse, which is it's not the box, it's the business model. And this applies to many, many different things where there's something, uh, and again, this isn't an argument against capitalism either, the mm-hmm. fact is markets are the very best tool that we have ever discovered and probably the best conceivable tool for figuring out how to do things. They are a terrible tool for figuring out what we should want done. And so by not separating those things, we're left with all of this carnage driven by markets. But yes, it, it's an amoral technology and it should be employed by uh, people who understand what the goal is, what the values are that we should actually Uh, honor. And so in all of these cases, though, my point about the teenager is the teenager grows into a well-adjusted adult by noticing all of those oversimplifications and the harm that is downstream of them and learning not to make them anymore. And so we are in some sense not functioning as adults in civilization anymore. We are continuing to make those kinds of mistakes where we spot something and then we overinterpret its meaning and apply it everywhere and destroy something. And what Heather and I are very concerned is that we are not doing the postmortem on all of the harm we're doing and saying, well, okay, where exactly was our error? Right. Mm-hmm. If we can do that analysis, we can get better. And the problem of hypernovelty is that it prevents you from doing that because by the time you get around to seeing the error of the last thing you did wrong, it's a moot point. You're on to the next novel thing and you are, again, not spotting the hazard that you are creating for yourself. And that's the problem that we have to face. Uh, I'd be curious to get your response to this. First of all, let me remind the audience uh, with whom I'm speaking, Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. Uh, they are the authors of a fascinating book entitled A Hunted Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life, as which we have said at the outset, there are many without question. At the university level, uh, because I, I have worked at the university level, graduate and undergraduate, uh, the main culprits in my eyes, for much of the confusion 
among young people is, is actually the administrators of the universities who uh, exercise a high degree of cowardness in my estimation, wanting rather to be popular rather than um, uh, exercising, as you've spoken about it elsewhere, gratification delay. Uh, delayed gratification, you have said, is, is in a sense uh, a key to wisdom in one way or another. Um, so there's this immediate capitulation to whatever's going on in the campus, and it's almost as though administrators will say, hey, we'll actually uh, we'll, we'll make the signs for you and give you spray cans to deface um, that which uh, has formerly be, been valued. Um, why is this happening? There are many reasons it's happening, and you're absolutely right that the administrators ultimately um, bear the, the blame for what is happening actually on campuses because they are literally the people hired to be the adults in the room when things go awry on college campuses. Mm. Add to that that faculty uh, are largely, not entirely, but um, for, for a variety of reasons, the postmodernism that was beginning to take hold in the academy in the late 80s, early 90s sort of went underground for a little while. And those students who picked up on it are today's faculty in not just some of the established fields in social sciences and humanities, but all of the all of the fill in the blank fields, all the grievance studies fields that, you know, Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose talk and write about so well. And those fields are engaged in disappearing the very concept of objective reality and increasing the desire of people to focus on how other people have made things bad for them as opposed to taking responsibility for themselves. Add to that, um, and we cannot blame people who arrive on the cusp of adulthood without the brains of adults because they didn't do it to themselves, but it is true that we've got a generation of people who are looking for meaning, striving for a way to make sense of a world which is which has decohered across so many domains. Among other things, the economic the economics of modernity is such that most young people now are looking at their parents and saying, for the first time in history, at least in the US, I don't know if I can attain the level of economic success even that my parents did. Add to that, and this is, you know, th this triumvirate is something that other people have talked about as well, including Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff and the coddling of the American mind, but the combination of um, parenting styles such as helicopter and snowplow parenting, which keep all risk away from children, such that uh, the children, when they are supposed to be exploring and understanding how it is to navigate physical risk, intellectual risk, psychological risk, emotional risk, instead are being completely cocooned from it. And so, of course, have no idea how to deal with it when it comes at them when they're outside of their homes. They've been handed screens from a young age and so are engaged with not other people who have surprising reactions and from whom they could learn. Um, but but images that respond in typical ways. And too many of them have been drugged, legally drugged. Um, again, if they're boys, often with speed for diagnoses of ADHD, and if they're girls, often with anti-anxiety or other mood-altering meds for um, for things like anxiety and, and depression. And you know, the fact that boys are more likely to be diagnosed uh, for something for which what what it means they're doing is actually being unwilling or incapable of sitting still in chairs for hours a day. Maybe that's not a problem with the boys, but a problem with the school system. Exactly. And so, and similarly, maybe the girls who are diagnosed with having social anxiety when what they're being fed is endless images of their friends and other girls who have been curated into perfection on screens. Mm. Maybe that's not a problem with the girls, but with the system. 
I I want to add two things because I I've been puzzling over this question about administrators for a long time, right? It's not obvious, right? If we take other categories of things, if uh, if a man is pursuing a woman, he, he is her suitor. He doesn't necessarily want more suitors, right? If somebody right, is a yes. very fast runner, they don't necessarily want lots of other really fast runners. So why is it that administrators seem to want so many other administrators? It's, a, it's an <laughs> yeah, interesting pro- little proliferation puzzle. is unbelievable. It, it seems to me that um, one of the problems with with the proliferation of uh, what I would call middle administrators is they have to justify their position. In order to justify their position, they have to, oh, a, a quick default is, okay, let's find out what the people beneath us are doing and make them report. So if you go, if a high school teacher even goes into the, to the with the best of intentions into a high school classroom with a sense of romanticism and I'm going to uh, alight students with an with a, uh, interest in Chaucer or, or Fitzgerald or whatever it may be, they cannot spend sufficient time reading a novel or sharing information about a novel without saying, what's the learning outcome? What's the intention? Was it met? Data, data, data. And who wants those things? It's the middle management academics that require it to justify their own position. Now, I would not want to give you the impression I'm opinionated. <laughs> well, I believe I, I share and I, I know Heather shares the same uh, dim opinion of these uh, <laughs> midwit, mid-level uh, managers. But but here's the thing. I, I did learn one thing from George Bridges, who was the president that uh, drove Evergreen onto the rocks. Um, he was actually excellent at this game of producing new administrative positions. Heather may actually remember some of the numbers, but how... how- I, I do. Um, when when he took office, there were four uh, divisions of the college, which are which are the ones you would expect. There was academics, which is you know maybe if you've never been to college, you would think that was the only division of the college. But there was academics. There was um, there was basically student affairs. There was uh, I don't remember what it was called, but basically all the infrastructure of the college. And then there was advancement, which is how to get money for the college. And he rearranged everything and made three new divisions and demoted academics such that now it was a confusing mess where the people who were actually trying to do the job of the college, which is education and research, um, were somehow in the middle of a sea of, of ridiculous departments. And let me just say one more thing, Brett, before you pick up again, I'm remembering too, even before uh, George Bridges came and, uh, as, as you say, steered steered Evergreen onto the rocks. I was uh, co-chairing a provost search at Evergreen with a giant committee, and we ended up with an excellent provost. Um, the first thing that Bridges did when he came to the campus was fire him. The, the thing that I learned from from watching George was that effectively he wanted to radically transform the college. For what reason, I don't exactly know, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and imagine he was a very confused guy who thought he was going to improve the place by turning it into something else. What he did was create an army of yes men by creating divisions, by taking people and radically increasing their salaries by giving them a high position. He took positions that had some power and divided them in two so that two people would be less effective at challenging him. So the basic point is it's Game of Thrones over in the administration building. Divide and, and one conquer. Of the te- divide and conquer and create an army of people who uh, not only, you know, you may select weak people who will say yes because they don't know any better. You may uh, make people dependent on you so they'll say yes so that you continue to favor them. But the basic point is it's a game theory puzzle in the administration building that has nothing to do with education. It's just a drain on it. It's parasitic. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am absolutely over the moon delighted to have as my guests today Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. Their latest book is entitled A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. I'm looking at your chapters, and I read the book, uh, and I just want to read some of the chapters so that the audience will know that it's a very practical and accessible book, although well-researched and uh, credited. Uh, the opening chapter is The Human Niche, and then you go on to uh, look at our ancient bodies, modern world in which we live in, which is basically the main thesis of, of, of so much of what you're uh, addressing. And then you look at medicine, food, and sleep, uh, which is very, very interesting. And you, you speak about the uh, necessity for us to get decent sleep. Obviously, we all know about that. And Heather, I was impressed by the point that you made that we tend to be uh, gravitating towards a number. So everyone hears eight hours, eight hours of sleep, which may not necessarily be the case. Would you, would you care to address that? Absolutely. Metrics are easy and you can take them into your head and remember them and recall them. I think metrics are even more misleading the more enumerate you might be. And I don't, I don't say that lightly. I think most adult Americans are not only somewhat enumerate, but it's almost a point of pride for some people that, you know, at some, at some East or West coast, at some, you know, coastal cocktail party among intellectually uh, educated people, you will never hear anyone saying, well, of course I'm illiterate, um, but you might well hear someone saying, well, I couldn't assess that. I'm not really good with math. Ha ha ha. Right. It, it is, it is almost a point of pride for people. And I think the less confident you are in math and most people are, and that's actually, you know, mostly again, not their fault. It's because most math, most math education itself is very poor. And so it gets scared out of people. Uh, the more likely you are to gravitate to a metric. Ah, okay, I need this many steps a day. I need this many um, calories a day. I need this many hours of sleep. And some of those metrics are going to be more valuable than others. I think eight hours of sleep is actually one of the, you know, towards the end of a fairly useful metric because the hour, the number of hours of sleep will, well, while the optimal number will vary between individuals, and it can be, you know, really between individuals, anything from probably six to 10 a night, um, it's the quality of sleep that matters. And um, if you're actually reliably getting the number that you know yourself to need, probably the quality is good as well. But it's no guarantee. And, you know, some of these metrics, things like how many calories a day that you need to eat, these are that's a terrible metric because it misunderstands so much about food and the form that the calories come in and when they come. And so, you know, your health is not going to be well served by thinking about a number of calories you should eat a day, whereas your sleep may be a little bit better served by considering whether or not you're getting quote unquote enough sleep a day. I would, I would add to this. Um, there's certainly, there's a lot of work that is done during sleep cognitively and otherwise, and one needs a sufficient quantity to do the work, but the glaring fact of the absurd way that we wake ourselves from sleep right? An mm. alarm clock that at some completely arbitrary moment in your sleep cycle brings you online all of a sudden as if there's an emergency. Yes. This can't possibly be a reasonable thing to do. And what's and more- at the point it does that, then you turn on the lights. Right. So then you you've got a sudden audio lights. and a sudden visual waking, which is not like 
anything that our ancestors would have been experiencing. Well, it's it's what they might have experienced in an emergency, right? right? So yes. the idea of using the system that's there in case a tiger is you know <laughs> right. loose in camp is it's not a wise. Yeah thing to do but it's be also, awake in every morning uh there's a lion outside right no and and <laughs> is it any is it any wonder that we often you know have a feeling of dread upon waking when we're using this stupid mechanism um it's also one that if we are uh not just smart but wise this is something that you could technologically address and in fact there are uh, i know from personal experience there are endogenous um mechanisms in our minds that if we alter our behavior. You know, it used to be when there was an alarm clock by the bed rather than a phone, that a glance at the alarm clock in the middle of the night during one of the many periods where you come to consciousness briefly actually would let me reset my clock so that at the point that I knew I was going to have to wake up, that I was actually at the end of a, a, a sleep cycle. So this is something technology can help address, but we have to recognize it as a problem first and not just simply assume that the answer to the question of how do you get up at a particular moment in the morning is you uh, have something alarm you awake. Well, you've spoken about blue light versus firelight, uh, and firelight is closer to tungsten, which is, you know, I'm going back to my photography days, about 3,200 degrees Kelvin, and uh, blue light, 56 100 degrees Kelvin, uh, the atmosphere that we have reflected around us, and how that is a, a major impactor on our ability to get back to sleep again. Now, you've employed techniques as parents with your children. As I've said before, the book not only addresses very practical things like the application of medicine, food, sleep, but also parenting and relationships and childhood. Uh, and you have two children, one 17, one 15 currently. I would credit you with being great parents. I mean, you have such practical, really discerning um, applications of how you deal with your children and also, interestingly, honoring their evolutionary historic biological history and recognize that, right, recognizing that in, the, in their rearing. Has it always been there since day one? Well, I want to uh, gently correct one thing. Okay. I don't think we're great parents because I don't think you can be a great parent in this era. It's really a, a losing battle. And we may be doing, we may be beating the odds. In fact, I think we probably are. But, you know, as with the issue of marriage, I think it is important not to imagine that there's someone out there succeeding against this puzzle, because really part of our point is the puzzle is beyond us. Um, so the question is, how well can you do given a puzzle that is not well formulated? Um, that said, I think, you know, one of the funny things, one of the places I would have predicted that Heather and I would have uh, struggled was parenthood, because both of us, just by virtue of uh, what we had seen in childhood and adolescence, had very little experience with children. And so when we were suddenly faced with the prospect of having one, we almost literally sat down and said, well, what's our approach here? Well, and I mean, quite literally, one of my theoretical interests had been the evolution of parental care. And um, I mean, this, this is going to sound clinical and it, it, you know, the decisions didn't end up being clinical, but I felt for a long time, I'm not necessarily driven to be a parent, but given that so much of my interest is in the evolution of sociality and territoriality and parental care, it seems a strange choice to not choose to become a parent in light of that. And, you know, it did feel very, very abstract until until the moment they each were born, at which point there is nothing abstract and it's, and it's, and it's pure love. And then, you know, what, what kinds of decisions do you remember us making early on? Well, um, Heather and I did have a conversation 
about how what we thought about what we saw people doing with very young children. And we more or less decided almost because we didn't know what else to do to talk to our children as effectively intelligent young adults from the beginning, which is, of course, it looks preposterous. And it is very funny when you're talking to a, an infant this way. No, I get but it. I get it. I get it. I completely it, it, get it. it. It contains this important thing, which is that a child understands far more than a child can say. Yes. And so if you respond to a child at the level that the child can respond to you, you're not you're not making use of your capacity to teach them. If you're shooting way over their heads, they can rise to meet you. And it does end up making very smart, very well-adjusted kids. And I'm stunned every day interacting with, uh, with our boys, just how uh, remarkably insightful they are. Yeah, it's 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 aspirational for them. And it also allows the parent to keep their adult brain going. Right. You know, we, mm. we hear about parents, usually mothers who just feel like they've got baby brain or child brain uh, because they are just with the children all day. Well, OK, so, you know, talk to them as you would be talking, you know, explore ideas, yes. the kinds of ideas yes. that you would be exploring with an adult even before they even have language, but they exactly. they are taking in the interaction before they can take in meaning. And then at some point they're taking in words. And then at some point they begin to take in meaning. And at some point they become people who can, who can talk right back with you. And, and have the, it's, the, the facility to reciprocate verbally. I, I agree exactly. with you. I mean, Christine and I, my wife, Christine, uh, we decided that we weren't going to talk down to our children. We would speak gently to them, but uh, in intonation and reassuringly. But the vocabulary we wouldn't diminish, and it's it's proven to be extremely effective because a child can eventually learn this meaning of mammoth just as easily as giant. And at some point, he's going to encounter, or she will encounter, a book that will have a picture of a woolly mammoth, and the child will go, "Oh, I remember that word. Mummy taught me mammoth. It must mean big." And they, the synopsis is fire, and they start to make the connections. Um, so I'm wholeheartedly in agreement with uh, with what you shared. Um, I want to talk about uh, the issue of relationships and marriage and, and parenthood. Um, uh, a lot of that is covered in, in chapter nine and, uh, and eight. Uh, there is something which I found very intriguing. I got myself in trouble in class one day because I was just from time to time do. And I innocently said that um, I thought that women enjoyed being pursued uh, and then men enjoy pursuing. And I meant that with high regard to my wife, because I think that one of the things that allow my wife and I to have the marriage we have is I continually pursue her. There's a lot of men who just will, you know, win their trophy and they kind of give up and it's the woman feels totally unappreciated. Uh, I have found that you can learn more from being with one woman for 38 years than some of my friends have from 38 relationships that have only lasted a year. Um, <laughs> and uh, I am a great believer uh, in in this idea of uh, enjoying our gender, if you will, and who we are uh, unapologetically. And yet now science, we are having a uh, striving for redefinition of gender versus sex. Um, you have spoken uh, again, Heather, about uh, the germ eat, uh, which is basically the mature male or female, I guess, germ cell trying to unite with the opposite creating a zygote, and then uh, you have the production of either male or female. This is very much um, held in question in our current culture. 
What do you think the end result of this will be? Because, I mean, I come from a, a culture which has always had cross people cross-dressing in Britain and there was a famous band called Daniel LaRue. And nobody had uh, innate hostility. They just recognized that this person chose their life to live either theatrically or regularly as the opposite gender. And, you know, people just kind of take it in their stride and like, okay, you know, you know fine, no problem. But some very high-profile people have gotten into trouble. Um, J.K. Rowling, uh, who said that there is a distinction between women and transgender women. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner has said the same thing, interestingly. And Jermaine Greer, one of the ardent voices for uh, feminism, said that, yes, there is a difference. Scientifically, we know that males don't menstruate. Men don't bear children. They don't lactate, for example. But if you have the, the temerity, the, the, um, the gumption to even uh, address this aloud, which we used to take as just a common knowledge, uh, you run the risk of being ostracized, losing your job, uh, being told you're hateful. And it's not that I'm concerned for those of us who perhaps who are established, although that can be shaky ground as well. I'm concerned for the confusion of generations coming up who don't feel that they even warrant the license to claim who they think they are. Well, Caitlyn Jenner would know, wouldn't she? Yes. Caitlyn Jenner, as Bruce Jenner, was an Olympian, an elite athlete, who would have been even more elite had he been female at the time, right? Caitlyn Jenner was then and will always be biologically male. To the degree that he produces gametes anymore, uh, there's it's sperm. Caitlin can present as female and take on the gender of being female and um, and the frankly, the tropes of traditional femininity, but mistaking the tropes of traditional femininity for being female is actually sexist and regressive and anti-scientific. It's all of those things. And so, you know, for me, this is both easy and exactly the hill that I'll die on. We know trans people, trans is real, trans is extremely rare. Cross-dressing is more common. And, you know, most people I would say who, who say they cross-dress don't make the claim that they have actually transitioned into something else, except perhaps temporarily when, when they, when they do so, but it points to exactly, you know, the, the truth of the matter. Taking on the traditional fashions and, you know, makeup and affectations of a sex does not make you into that sex. There are no functional hermaphrodites among mammals. There are people who are intersex, that's different, and that's, it's a developmental anomaly, and it's not anything that is, that, that happens with any regularity, and those people aren't functional at the sexually reproductive level. There are hermaphrodites in other species, in other clades, um, but never in mammals, never in humans, um, functionally. So, yeah, the germ cells, it's, it's, it's the germ cells that tells us what sex you are, the gametes. If you bring to the sexual act a gamete that is rich with cytoplasm and has all the stuff that is going to be required to make a cell plus half the DNA, you're female. That's called an egg. And because you're a pretty big gamete, um, you don't move around much. And that solves one half of the problem of sexual reproduction. You need, you need to get two halves of DNA together, and then you need the parts of the cell and you need to find each other. So the egg brings all the rest of the parts of the cell, and then the sperm is stripped down and it has none of the parts of the cell, such that when a sperm and an egg meet, there's no disagreement about whose mitochondria is going to be used. It's always the eggs because the sperm doesn't have any to bring. But what the sperm has is a motor and it's zippy and it finds the, the egg. 
And to some degree, these roles of the gametes scale up and some of them change and um, they're more labeled. Eggs like to be pursued. What's that? (laughs) Exactly. This is exactly where I'm going. So Brett just gave the punchline that I was just going to give. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. The the egg, you know, the egg is, is there full of resource, full of potential and it doesn't move much and it's eager to be pursued and the sperm is the pursuer. And yes, it gets more labile, more flexible, more changeable, the more behavioral it is, the more derived the organism is. Um, but that basic truth remains true at many levels. Well, I, I apologize for, no uh, for stealing your joke. <laughs> um, I, I do want to point out, it is increasingly clear to me that we are missing the mark trying to explain in clearer and clearer language why there are two sexes and why this isn't a matter that one can simply choose. And I think this is particularly clear in the Dave Chappelle case recently. So I I believe we watched the special in order to know what the controversy was about. Uh, I am with our children, with our children. Um, I'm a huge Dave Chappelle fan. I assume uh, Heather would say the same. But in any case, we watched it and, you know, there was some stuff in that special that was pretty edgy, but the trans stuff, actually, if you listen carefully to what he said, was amazingly compassionate. His story about his friend, and I, I don't want to deliver spoilers, but his story about his trans friend is um, heartbreaking and it is clear that his heart is broken too. And it was delivered. He pulled no punches. He was not overly generous. He, it was, it was clear that it was an accurate story of his relationship with a particular trans person. And the next day after we watched the walkout at Netflix happened and I had the sense, actually, he is not being punished for being problematic with respect to trans. He is being punished for solving the problem that in effect, and Heather and I draw a clear distinction. We, as Heather said, we know quite a number of trans people from the years in which we taught. They, there were uh, quite a number that came through our classroom. And we always had good relationships with these people. And we never found any of these troubling claims, nor in my experience, were we ever asked to use some pronoun that was not standard. Um, mm-hmm. Right. People, you, we, they'd say, please call me she, but you know, it was not they, and it wasn't Zer or any of these things. So anyway, my point would be a distinction between trans activism and trans people is vital. And the trans activists seem to want power. They want power to redefine, even in the case that they are up against science itself. And we must not let that occur. What we need is more comedy like what Dave Chappelle was doing. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with Dave Chappelle's perspective, but the point is comedy is actually a tool by which we sort through these very difficult issues. And they're trying to take it off the map so that we can't solve the problem so that this power play continues to work. And uh, I, I think it, it's time just simply to say no. People have asked us, how, how did you manage to teach at Evergreen, given the kinds of things you must have been teaching, you know, given what's in this, in this book, yes. um, what, how is it that your students actually liked you, right? Mm. And it is precisely because, and it was precisely because we were teaching evolutionary biology and we made no bones about it. And we said, we're going to be talking about the evolution of sex and sex differences. And we're going to be talking about 
all of the things that are evolutionary in human history, the beautiful things like a mother's love for her child and a stranger helping someone out on the street, and the reprehensible things like rape and genocide and female genital mutilation. All of these things are evolutionary, and you can tell by the examples that we do not assign a moral value to something just because we have concluded that it is evolutionary. We are trying to understand it as evolutionary, and then we can decide what we want to do about it. But isn't it better to be as informed as possible before you decide what to do about it? And frankly, our trans students and our gay students and you know all of the other students who came in trying to figure out who they were and what their identity meant were gratified, not horrified. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. And uh, I have the high honor of speaking with Heather Hying and her husband, Brett Weinstein. They are the author of the new release, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life. The conclusion of your book, uh, you start to near the concept of becoming adults. And... uh, I want to know, what do you define as an adult? I mean, some people would just go simply with biology and we go through puberty. People will go through chronology as the definition when you're 18 or 21, depending on the culture, or 13. Um, how do you define adulthood? Uh, you probably don't, but I would say we hint at the question in the book uh, when we point out that we've lost in the West all of our meaningful rites of passage. And the fact is, almost any functional culture from the past would have had some moment at which we declared adulthood at a beginning. And what that does for the mind is it creates a a change of chapter. It says, before this point, I am developing the capacity to do something. And after this point, I am now doing that thing. I gain the rights of an adult, and I take on, even more importantly, the responsibilities of an adult. And I think what we have in foregoing meaningful rites of passage, what we have is a system in which because there is no transition in the mind or because the transitions that we have, like the graduation from high school or college, um, because these things are trivial, what we effectively have is a state of immaturity that continues on indefinitely. And maybe it dwindles or maybe it doesn't, but it's especially bad in light of a market that makes a profit by exploiting our defects. Perpetual adolescence. Yes, perpetual adolescence is profitable for other people. Our perpetual adolescence is profitable for other people, right? We can be uh, induced to part with our money because somebody has created something that is built to trigger our desire, even if it's not good for us. And what we need to do is recognize that in the end, not only is that not serving us, but it is hollowing out the most important things about life. We do not end up satisfied. And I would encourage people to think about how it is they can step away from that treadmill and by embracing delayed gratification in all of its many manifestations, pursue meaning, right? It, it, is, it is significant to get up in the morning and at least know what the challenges ahead are about rather than just know that you've got to get some stuff done because it's somehow tied to your paycheck and your insurance and all of these other things. And 
Um, it will be a different world if people embrace that next phase of life rather than uh, fighting it. You've spoken about uh, meaning and uh, the importance of, of, of its merit in our lives and our daily existence. You have elsewhere spoken about boredom leading to, of all things, addiction. And I think it was Heather who referenced uh, uh, studies with rats and, uh, and various drugs that uh, if a rat does not have many options, it would just perpetually look for the methamphetamine you know, button to push to get its uh, daily dose. Um, I encounter people who are 70, 75, 80, who are very much alive. And sadly, I encounter people 14 who seem less than. What's the remedy? Yeah, uh, I, I think it's the answer is in both your question and and what Brett was just saying. So with regard to the rat studies, we have this, many of us have this idea in our head based on an increasingly archaic model of addiction, that some substances are just addictive, right? That if you, if you encounter cocaine one or a couple of times, you will become addicted. And it is of course true that there is physiological addiction for many substances which are addictive, um, but it is not just metaphor that we also talk about addiction to things like gambling, uh, for instance, which have no such exogenous drug that you are taking into your brain. It is a, it is a takeover of an endogenous system. And what, the, what some of the rat research that you alluded to suggests is that if you enrich a rat's environment in advance of giving it the option to take a drug, uh, it'll try it, sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll try lots of stuff. All of us, um, those of us who are who are not locked down into um, into fear about all new things, and you know, exploration and novelty seeking is part of what what makes humans so extraordinary. But the rat who already had an enriched environment, who was not in short bored, is much less likely to become an addict. Suggesting that a simple physiological model of addiction is insufficient at best. Um, I would add one other thing. It became very clear in teaching undergraduates that the key element of educability has to do with motivation. It's not about intelligence. Human beings are inherently intelligent. The problem is when you have competing uh, concerns, when various things are uh, potential uh, uses of your time, then what you choose to spend your time on dictates how much you encounter that actually enriches what's in your mind. And what this means is that it's very important for young people to have a relationship with struggle and with failure that does not derail them. If your reaction is that struggle and failure, that the feelings that go along with that are inherently about doing something wrong, then you will never be able to accomplish anything that requires struggle and repeated failure. So you have to develop a healthy relationship with these things in order to be able to achieve difficult stuff. And I think, you know, an, another element of what happened in our teaching lives was that Heather and I often taught together. And that meant that students got to watch us interact and they got a deep understanding of the fact that we were actually very different and that although we had both accomplished things in the world, we didn't use the same mechanisms to do it. But just simply knowing that there is a goal, something one might attain, and that it has certain characteristics that are required to get there, like an ability to endure struggle, 
uh, is almost all you need to know, right? If, if you can't endure struggle, then it's a capacity you have to develop. Let me add one more thing, which is uh, a drumbeat in our thinking about education. And it shows up in the book as well, I think, in the chapter on school, that one way to, to not be bored and to find meaning and to get feedback from the world that is that is itself meaningful such that you can figure out what it is that your value is in the world, what your skill set is and should be and where your passions lie, is to pursue at least something, and I would say more than one thing, that will give you physical feedback of the world. That many, many young people, because of the ubiquity of screens, have almost or almost entirely social existence in which anything that happens, they can potentially change the outcome just by social machination. Whereas if you do carpentry or gardening or bicycling or rock climbing or baking or any number of things with actual physical ramifications in the world, you can't, you, you can't negotiate your way to a different outcome. If someone walks up to you and says, does it run? or you know, is the cake edible, or did you grow zucchini? You can't convince them otherwise um, if the physical result in the universe is one thing. As Brett has said, build something. Yeah, build something, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, build something, and then, then you'll know how to build it better. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Well, Heather and Brett, you are stellar people, and yeah, I'm sure you have your disfavorable sides, as we all do, but um, you're an inspiration to me, and I hope to much of America. Thank you for being an extremely valuable part of watching America with us today. The book is entitled A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century Evolution and the Challenges of Modern Life, and the authors are Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein. I think you have done a terrific job of spanning much of the breadth of what we talk about in the book. I would agree. I, th I think it's been a, an excellent discussion. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Take care and God bless. Watching America's theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Todd Washburn is our sound engineer. Assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer Chuck Dowd, Chief of Content Heather Mazzoni, CEO Bert Schmidt, creator and host yours truly, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.